Hello, and welcome back to another installment of In Summation, The Final Word, a podcast for inquisitive minds on real-life courtroom drama. I'm your host, Paul Townsend. And today, I am flying solo, though based on the responses I've had for the last few episodes, I will be bringing on guests again in the near future. I'm really glad fans of the show seem to enjoy the conversational nature of my guest hosts. In today's episode, we're going to be focusing on an area of law that's really near and dear to my heart. I apologize in advance. This is likely going to go into some ranting, because when I feel that constitutional rights are infringed, people sent to prison, because they're inconvenient, or they challenge the status quo, I really can't help myself. The subject of today's episode is very much an iconoclast. We're going to go back to the early 20th century. But before we get into the meat of today, I do want to make a slight disclaimer. I've made it in the past. I'm going to do it again. There are a lot of politics involved in today's episode. This is not a culture war podcast. If you're looking for a show to just cheer on the blue team or the red team, there are thousands out there. This just isn't one of them. Not that there's anything wrong with them. It's just not the focus here. I do try not to let my own personal philosophy impact any analysis of legal arguments or reasoning, and I try to be as upfront as possible when dealing with my own opinions as opposed to what was factually offered at a trial. That being said, the subject of today's inquiry was arrested and prosecuted for political speech. In 1917, Congress passed what's called the Espionage Act. The idea behind the law was that the United States was now involved in World War I and needed to present a united front to the war effort. Among other things, the Espionage Act criminalized openly criticizing or impeding the draft. As you can imagine, when this law was signed by President Woodrow Wilson, it did not sit well with everyone. Many people in this country opposed the draft, and many wanted to vocally express their displeasure. One of the most vocal groups in calling for an end to the draft and to World War I itself, or at least America's involvement in it, was the Socialist Party of America. Several members of the Socialist Party of America were arrested pursuant to the Espionage Act. In fact, Woodrow Wilson's Department of Justice jailed thousands of people for engaging in nonviolent speech, which was critical of the draft, or the war in general, or was just considered anti-government. The individual who we are going to talk about today was one of those men, and perhaps he was one of the most prominent. He was a five-time presidential candidate for the Socialist Party of America. He was a political activist, a trade unionist. He was one of the founding members of the Industrial Workers of the World. He was a charismatic public speaker and refused to sit idly by when he perceived injustice in the world. This is the United States v. Eugene Debs. Eugene, or Gene Debs as he was commonly known, was born November 5, 1855, in Terry Hot, Indiana. His parents, Jean Daniel and Marguerite, immigrated to the United States from Alsace, France. 
Jean Daniel was an industrialist who owned a textile mill and a meat market and did fairly well for himself. Debs was a fairly sharp student, but he never came close to graduating high school. He dropped out at 14 years old to take a job cleaning grease off freight engines for the Vandalia Railroad Company. For this grueling work, he earned 50 cents a day. In his mid to late teens, he worked other jobs for the railroad. He was a painter and a car cleaner. He became a late-night fireman for a few years. A fireman is the person responsible for tending to the engine fires by shoveling coal into a steam engine. In 1875, when Debs was 20 years old, he settled down to work at a grocery store while he attended business school in Terry Hawk at night. While attending business school, he helped to organize a local group of other trained firemen, which became known as the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen. This little group flourished and gained a lot of popularity. Debs was ultimately elected their national secretary and treasurer in 1880. From 1879 to 1883, Debs was the city clerk for Terry Hawk, and then he actually became a member of the Indiana legislature as a Democrat in 1885. Debs was fiercely pro-labor and pro-union. He was constantly advocating for labor to organize, especially among the various railroads, which was his industry. Debs was ultimately responsible for uniting various railroad workers into the first industrial union in the United States, the American Railway Union. Although the ARU began as a small group of railroad employees, it rose to national prominence in 1894 when they went on strike against the Great Northern Railway in order to secure higher wages. In June of 1885, Debs married Catherine Manzell. Debs himself became a national figure when he spent six months in jail in 1895, shortly after his wedding, for leading the Chicago Pullman Palace Car Company strike. While he was serving his sentence in Woodstock, Illinois, Debs began receiving mail from socialists all over the country. They would send him books, pamphlets, leaflets, and other reading materials. Debs began reading the works of Karl Marx, and became convinced that the traditional capitalist ideals were all wrong. He began to favor a populist-socialist approach. Once he was released from jail, he announced his conversion to socialism and founded the Socialist Party of America. In the 1900 presidential election, Debs ran for the Socialist Party and received 96,000 votes. He did not, however, win any electoral college votes. Despite Debs' increasingly negative view of capitalism, his wife Catherine, or Kate as she was known, never ascribed to socialism or collectivist ideology, but this does not appear to have ever really become a marital issue, as Debs is universally considered to have been one of the most personable and amicable individuals to have lived in this time period. In an interview about her husband, Kate Debs is recorded as saying, quote, Everybody who knows Eugene likes him. If his worst enemy came into the room where he was and remained half an hour, he would be sure to go away a friend, end quote. But let's not make the mistake of mistaking pleasantry for weakness. While Debs may have been a man of pleasant manners and cordial spirit, he was anything but a pushover. He stood up for what he felt was right, and he was not shy about bringing attention to it. He cared deeply about the poor and the disabled. 
I mentioned that Debs ran for president in 1900 and received 96,000 votes. He ran again in 1904, 1908, 1912, and 1920. He refused the nomination in 1916 for that election. At his peak, he actually received roughly 6% of the popular vote in this country, making him the most successful third-party candidate up to that time. Okay, so let's talk about how this amiable labor leader found himself on the business end of one of the most famous trials in the first half of the 20th century. And the answer to that is truly depressing. If you listened to the previous episode where my colleague and friend Robert Gottlieb and I discussed the Fred Korematsu case, you will recall how I feel about using national security and war as an excuse to trample on civil liberties and freedoms. If you haven't yet listened to that episode, I encourage you to do so. It was a great discussion. But the bottom line is that I am a systems and institutions thinker. I believe that the system created by the Bill of Rights doesn't bend or break based on political experience or because the regime in control is upset or offended by the content of speech. I'm inherently suspicious of any legislation which purports to infringe on rights and the rights of individuals to engage in speech, especially. To really understand the prosecution of Gene Debs, we need to understand the world in 1917 a little bit. The world's at war. The United States has shed its largely isolationist foreign policy and joined the allied powers of Russia, France, Great Britain, Italy, and Japan against the central powers of Germany, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, and Bulgaria. Woodrow Wilson is president at the time, and while nominally a Democrat, the Wilson administration engaged in a wide variety of very anti-democratic behavior. One of the worst offenses, in my humble opinion, was its fervent support for the Espionage Act of 1917. Now, there's a lot to dislike about the Espionage Act. What you need to know for our purposes here today is that the act was essentially a paranoid attempt to force the American people to support a war which was already fairly popular by and large. Still, any time in America's history that it has engaged in armed conflict, there have been people who did not support it. We call them conscientious objectors, Quakers, pacifists, peaceniks, isolationists. They have names and titles that go on and on. The Wilson administration, which had also authorized the Selective Service Act of 1917, also known as the draft, did not want people objecting to, disparaging, or slandering either the draft or America's participation in World War I in any way. Just as an aside, I have serious objections to drafting 18 to 25-year-olds into military service. To me, it's akin to uh, mandating a slave army. You are more or less kidnapping children and young adults, forcing them into combat, and telling them that they must kill or be killed. I have an immense amount of respect and support for those individuals who volunteer in the armed forces. I believe they are worthy of a nation's gratitude. I do not think that the state should be able to force kids into combat zones because their name came up in a lottery. That, to me, just feels wrong. But that's just one of the many things that I disagree with Woodrow Wilson about. Wilson wanted his draft, and he got it. 
The reason he needed it was that Americans had not volunteered for the army en masse the way he expected them to when he declared war. This was 1917, so the draft was only for men. But Wilson had expected that because Americans supported the war effort in general, that they would naturally volunteer. But it turned out that answering a poll question as to whether you supported the war was a very different consideration than the question of whether you would voluntarily risk your life to support the war. Having dealt with the problem of a lack of volunteers, Wilson was now dealing with the problem of the draft not being terribly popular. People were beginning to speak publicly about their displeasure with the government forcing children into slave armies to fight and die overseas. President Wilson decided that the only rational response to this was to declare that anyone who attempted to interfere or undermine the United States forces during a war was committing espionage for the enemy and could be fined $10,000 or face up to 20 years in prison. Let's also remember that in 1917, $10,000 was actually a lot of money. But yes, 20 years as a potential sentence for undermining the military. Guess what? Protesting the draft or speaking publicly about perceived problems with forced enlistment into the military was determined to be interfering or undermining the armed services. I have no doubts, listeners, that you can see where this is going. On one hand, we have a true ideologue who is constitutionally incapable of sitting idly by while he perceives injustice or brutality being committed towards the weak and the powerless. On the other hand, we have a federal government who has imposed a law outlawing any actions that can be described as undermining the draft of what were frequently the weak and the powerless among society. On June 16, 1918, on a bandstand stage in Nimicilla Park, Canton, Ohio, Gene Debs delivered a speech to a crowd who had associated for the Buckeye State's annual socialist convention, where Debs was the keynote speaker. The speech clearly denounced America's participation in World War I and specifically encouraged resistance to the draft. At the outset of his oratory, Debs alluded to the Espionage Act when he said, quote, I must be exceedingly careful, prudent, as to what I say, and even more careful and prudent as to how I say it. I may not be able to say all I think, but I am not going to say anything that I do not think. I would rather at times be a free soul in jail than to be a sycophant and coward in the streets, end quote. From this, to me, it seems fairly clear that Debs knew that there could be repercussions to what he was about to say, but he was trying to calculate a way to say it to avoid getting in trouble. Now, let's be clear. Debs' speech was a call to the socialist movement in America to wake up and take action. This was not a speech for the general public to share his views on World War I. Debs was specifically focused on how socialists should feel about it from the lens of that particular ideology. As I said dozens of times on this podcast, I try to keep politics, and specifically my own political leanings, out of my show. I don't think my own personal beliefs on the nature of government and power have much to do with breaking down interesting legal arguments and rulings. I don't want anyone to feel alienated who might disagree with me, and I don't want to make me the focus of the episodes. I am not. For my part, I don't understand how the right to free speech can be a partisan or a culture war issue. I simply don't understand the arguments for censorship. We'll get into that in a few when we really dissect the trial itself. 
while I will say that there are certainly parts of Deb's political philosophy, which I will likely never agree with, the parts of his speech where he railed against government censorship of speech, I can really get behind. Naturally, Debs was angry that certain socialist publications, pamphleters, leafleters, and other organizations were being suppressed by the government. It should not come as a surprise that many of the socialist news organizations, which the government was cracking down on, were running anti-war articles and editorials. A good deal of Debs' speech in Canton, Ohio, dealt with the impropriety of government restrictions on expression and speech, specifically about World War I. But Debs was also very clear about his position on the war itself. He said, quote, They have always taught you that it is your patriotic duty to go to war and slaughter yourself at their command. You never had a voice in this war. The working class who make the sacrifices, who shed the blood, have never yet had a voice in declaring war, period. It's estimated that there were somewhere in the vicinity of 500 to 1,000 people in attendance. Hundreds of the eventgoers were doubtless socialists who came to hear their most prominent member speak. But there were also many in the crowd who were not there to support the Socialist Party. Department of Justice agents were also in attendance, hoping to gather evidence that could potentially be used to prosecute Debs. And he did not disappoint. When he made the speech... Deb had made a significant effort to restrain himself just enough not to run afoul of the law. But he had a different view of what restraint was than the federal government. Two weeks later, on June 30th, 1918, Gene Debs was arrested while en route to another speaking engagement in Cleveland, Ohio. He was charged in a 10-count indictment which stated that he did unlawfully, willfully, and feloniously cause an attempt to cause and incite an attempt to incite insubordination, disloyalty, mutiny, and refusal of duty in the military and naval forces of the United States. Debs knew from the beginning that he would be convicted of the charges. He wrote a letter in July 2018 to a friend in which he stated, I'm expecting nothing but conviction under a law flagrantly unconstitutional, and which was framed especially for the suppression of free speech. Once again, I find myself in complete agreement with Gene Debs. His bond was posted by socialist comrades Marguerite Previ and A.W. Moskowitz, so Debs went home to await his trial. As this was intended to be little more than a show trial, everything moved extremely quickly. Having been arrested at the very end of June, the trial began on September 10th, 1918. That's a mere 41 days later. This is extremely rare in criminal cases, and especially in federal criminal cases. The way the laws today are set up, there is so much process and procedure which needs to take place before a case is even ready to go to trial. In the federal system, once a person is arrested and charged with a federal crime, The prosecutors are required to make discovery disclosures to the defense of certain pieces of evidence which it may introduce at trial. The government is also required to produce exculpatory or favorable evidence to the defense. There's a federal rule of criminal procedure which mandates this. The discovery process itself often takes upwards of four, five, or even six months in some cases. Once the defense is in receipt of all of the discovery, Only then can they fully determine what types of motions they want to file. 
There could be motions to dismiss the indictment, motions to suppress certain evidence for various reasons, motions to exclude certain testimony, or to compel production of additional evidence from other sources. Motions take place after discovery because the law contemplates that a defendant may not even be aware that certain motions are necessary until he or she is in possession of all of the evidence. Motions themselves often take several months to resolve. In the last case my firm took to trial, there was an outstanding motion to dismiss for two years and three months, just to give you some perspective. That's outside the norm, but several months of motion practice is quite common. Even in 1918, 41 days was absurdly quick. Debs' arrest and trial made national headlines. Debs was a very public figure and the government use of the new Espionage Act was a major source of conversation in the public. Debs was not the only high-profile socialist arrested. Those who are familiar with this dark era in the country's grapple with free speech rights may also remember the prosecution of socialist Charles Schenck. Schenck was prosecuted for violating the Espionage Act through public speeches and leaflets, opposing the draft and participation in World War I as well. Debs' trial was interesting for a number of reasons. At base, nobody really bothered to pretend that this was not a show trial. Not the Honorable Judge David Westernhaver, not Federal Prosecutors Francis Kavanaugh and Joseph Breitenstein. In fact, even the defense lawyers, Seymour Stedman and William Cunia, accepted the truth, which was really reflected in their strategy. The trial took all of two days. That's it. Two days. Debs gave his offending speech on June 16, 1918, and by September 12, 1918, the trial was over. Kavanaugh and Breitenstein put on the case which you would expect. They introduced photos of Debs giving the speech. They introduced a transcript of the speech itself. They put on a few of the agents to testify about being there and hearing the speech. And perhaps my favorite aspect of the prosecution's case was that they specifically called out the Socialist Convention for holding a gathering involving a bandstand during wartime which was not decorated with a single bit of patriotic paraphernalia. No flags, no banners, no fanfare at all. This was actually a prosecution argument during this trial. Picture a federal prosecutor today going to trial against, let's say, Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks founder. Picture the government prosecuting him for violating the Espionage Act, for publishing information which interfered with the armed services. Now, after the prosecutors introduce all of the evidence showing his IP address, uploading the materials, his computers, his servers, his logins, testimony from technology experts on cybersecurity, all the minutiae to tie Assange into WikiLeaks, picture now that the prosecutor then tells the jury in summation that they should be both morally and ethically repulsed that the photographs taken of Assange's laptop have no pro-America stickers on them. His office didn't contain a POW MIA poster on his wall. There was no monograph of the Blue Angels hanging over his desk chair. The whole thing is absurd. Deb's lawyers didn't call any witnesses on his behalf. They didn't introduce any evidence to counter the charges. The only thing they did was allow Debs himself to take the stand. Knowing how this trial was going to end, Debs knew that the country would be watching and he wanted his voice to be heard. 
he delivered a powerful and passionate two-hour speech in his trial from the witness stand. In it, he did not ask for mercy. He acknowledged that he opposed the current structure of the government and favored socialism. He took full advantage of the opportunity to advocate for a peaceful and orderly change in government. He was convicted that same day on September 12, 1918, and less than a week later, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He appealed his case to the Supreme Court, where Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote the opinion for the unanimous decision upholding the Espionage Act as a legitimate exercise of government power during wartime and upholding their previous decision in Schenck v. United States, which had the same unanimous result. This thoroughly sickens me. And this is the real takeaway point that I want to convey in today's episode. Free speech matters. I don't care if you don't like it. I don't care if you find it inconvenient. I don't care if you disagree with it, find it repugnant or morally reprehensible. Our country was founded on the principle that the government should not be able to censure speech it does not like. That's a step towards tyranny. When people aren't free to voice their dissent, when they don't have the ability to come together to discuss their positions, when you take away the power of people to communicate and find out what they agree on and even what they don't, You've taken away the ideal of having a society which is governed by its own people. We have seen this happen in our nation's history, especially in war times, but again, not always. And I used to think that it was about fear. The country was at war and the government was afraid that if people were free to voice dissent or opposition, they would actually impede the government of the country effectively waging war the way that it wants to. It would somehow have an impact. And the fear of having to deal with the internal divisions while there's some existential external threat was more than the government was prepared to deal with, so they imposed restrictions to make sure they only had to deal with one problem at a time. This felt right to me. I could follow the logic, don't fight a war on two fronts if you don't have to. But as I get older, and perhaps more cynical, I've come to appreciate that fear has little, if anything, to do with this. Curbing free speech is about power and control. Specifically, it's about keeping power and control. The people in charge want to prevent their opposition from having a voice, so they squash it. War simply presents governments with a crisis they can manipulate to enact laws which they can claim are for the common good, but which actually benefit nobody but those already in power. In the Korematsu decision, we looked at the delicate balance between national security and civil liberties in the context of World War II. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, just briefly, Fred Korematsu was an American of Japanese descent living in California in the 1940s. When World War II broke out, the United States government set up concentration camps for the Japanese living on the West Coast, regardless of whether they were U.S. citizens. Korematsu, not trying to make a political statement, but rather trying not to leave his Italian girlfriend, refused to relocate to a camp and was arrested. He became the unwitting poster child for protesting the horrific treatment of approximately 120,000 people living in the United States. When the issue of internment came before the Supreme Court, they decided that the policy was a legitimate use of government power despite the fact that the government could not point to a single act of espionage or sabotage from the Japanese-American community on the West Coast. 
We look back on this decision, as we do with many others, with not just a little bit of shame. The Supreme Court is supposed to be apolitical. It is supposed to be above the pettiness and the muck. It is supposed to represent the pure application of the constitutional text and values that are the foundation of our society. But time and again in American history, the Supreme Court gets it wrong. And when they get it wrong, they get it wrong big. The Debs case, which is a huge opportunity to affirm the central value of free speech, regardless of what's happening in the world around us, and the Supreme Court dropped the ball in the worst possible way. The court's holding in Debs and Schenck created a new test to determine whether certain speech enjoyed constitutional protections. It was termed the clear and present danger test. Under the test, speech is not protected if it presents a clear and present danger of a significant evil which Congress has the power to prevent. Justice Holmes, again writing for the unanimous court, determined that distributing leaflets or charismatically encouraging people to protest or fail to report for the draft was sufficiently likely to disrupt the conscription process. Holmes famously compared the leaflets to shouting fire in a crowded theater, which, under the clear and present danger test, would not be considered protected speech. And that's the origin of the mantra, that one cannot yell fire in a crowded theater, which is frequently trotted out every time someone wants to defend a restriction on free speech. We can assume that people who constantly bring up this famous line are unfamiliar with the progression of free speech cases after Debs and Schenck, where the court modified this test in a case called Brandenburg v. Ohio. Under the new Brandenburg test, shouting fire in a crowded theater actually would be protected as First Amendment speech. So while I would certainly not recommend it, you are entitled to yell fire in a crowded theater to your heart's content. But let's get back to Debs and his speech issue. So Justice Holmes and the rest of the Supreme Court write down that they are actually seriously worried that the Socialist Party of America delivering leaflets, which didn't encourage violence, but merely counseled people to, quote, assert their rights, end quote, as well as speeches in which men like Gene Debs oppose the war and the government's crackdown on their preferred news outlets, are actually going to disrupt the draft. Let's take a moment to reflect on just how disingenuous that reasoning is. There is no way on earth that our nine most credentialed jurists in 1919, when this case was actually decided, actually believed that a few crank political outsiders would seriously harm the war effort and the draft. In my opinion, this decision had absolutely nothing to do with the ability to maintain the integrity of selective service and everything to do with trying to cripple the Socialist Party. Here's the problem with that. The Socialist Party has as much right to believe what they believe as the Democratic and Republican parties do. So does the Communist Party, even the Nazi Party. We can disagree with a party's base ideology while still appreciating and affirming that in the United States, they are free to advocate for the political system they want if they're peaceful about it. Once speech actually becomes violence, then we arrest and prosecute for violence. But our government who has a de facto monopoly on legalized violence, should never weaponize the law to suppress people from expressing their beliefs about how government ought to be run. That's the truly awful thing about the Debs ruling. It's not that a socialist was sent to prison for years for agitating. 
that's too myopic and narrow-minded. It's that anyone in 1918 could be sent to prison for the crime of expressing displeasure with a government policy. That is a truly terrifying thought to me. And although I said we see this happen more often in wartime, it can happen anytime if we let it. Governments inherently crave more power. It's incredibly rare for a government to willingly cede or give up any authority which it has absorbed. They just don't do it willingly. That's why it's so important for people to value things like free speech. Because when people value it, then they vote for elected leaders who also value it and who will work to safeguard it. President Woodrow Wilson did not value free speech. He did not value debate. He valued power. He wanted to do what he thought he should do, and he did not want any pesky citizens voicing displeasure over it. But whether it's 1919 or 2019, these arguments and debates keep coming back. The descriptions change. Today, we use terms like disinformation and misinformation, but those are just cleverly disguised ways to delineate speech we don't like. It often does not matter if the speech is accurate or not. If those in power do not like it, they will label it disinformation. The appropriate way to deal with disinformation is to challenge it with debate, expose the error, and use that to convince others that the truth is the truth. When you merely suppress speech... Not only does it deprive the general public of the ability to weigh for themselves whether they agree or not, it entrenches people who may have ultimately been convinced of the error of their ways. You cannot call someone a bigot or a racist or an idiot or a spreader of lies, refuse to engage them, and then turn around and act surprised when they won't just acknowledge that they were completely wrong and you were right. That is not how you change minds. You engage in civil discourse. You present your ideas and the reasoning behind them. Maybe you change their mind. Maybe you don't. Maybe you both end the debate feeling the same way, but a little more educated about what other people think. Or maybe, just maybe, some points get brought up that you hadn't considered. And maybe there's some merit to the opposite way of thinking after all. Decisions like United States v. Debs silence healthy debate and engagement. They create black markets for ideas when we founded a country on freedom of conscience and thought. They tell people that some ideas are simply too dangerous to let permeate through society. That's the complete worst strategy imaginable. First, it creates a total us-versus-them mentality, when in reality it's just two groups who have differing views on how best to govern. It foments hate and division instead of learning. It is the government shouting down someone and silencing them, sending the message that the government is so unable to defend its positions with reason that it is choosing to avoid the debate altogether. Now, many of my friends who do know my political leanings and know how I feel about free speech have asked how I feel about corporate censorship, especially in light of Elon Musk's recent bid to buy Twitter and take it private. To me, this is simple. The First Amendment prevents the government from censoring speech. It does not apply to corporations, public or private. And I believe that a company can run itself how it sees fit. If Twitter or Facebook wants to censor, then I personally think that's an unfortunate decision for them to make, but I would nonetheless agree that they certainly have the right to make it. If you don't want to support a company that engages in censorship, then don't patronize that company. If Twitter tomorrow said that it would kick off anyone who tweeted or shared woke ideology or liberal politics, 
Twitter would probably go under within the week because people would abandon Twitter on their own or be deplatformed by a company making self-injurious decisions. Corporations cannot force you to engage with them. Governments can. That is why the First Amendment protections on speech are so vital and why we should all care about all speech, even speech we disagree with. Typically, when the government moves to restrict speech, they attack the groups on the margins. Mainstream ideas are never the subject of government censorship. Debs was considered an extremist in the early 20th century. Socialist politics were rarely put in the spotlight the way Debs was able to achieve. Even though he was able to secure hundreds of thousands of votes in presidential elections ultimately, and actually his best numbers were in 1920 when he ran while in federal prison for his conviction, but his views were still way outside the norm. But what happens when you lop off the margins? All you do is create new margins, just a little bit closer to the middle. There will always be groups that say things that you or I do not agree with. America is incredibly diverse, both demographically as well as ideologically. It's one of the truly great things about this country. So many different ideas come here from so many places. It does nobody any good to willfully remove ideas from the public sphere because one group who happens to be currently in power disagrees with them. In summation, this became a bit more of a rant episode than I had originally intended, but free speech is such a big issue to me and I really just couldn't help myself. In my mind, this is not a partisan issue. Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Greens, Socialists, Communists, Bourgeois, Proletariat, whatever you are, you should care about free speech. You should support free speech because all of us have at least one idea in our heads that is outside of the norm, that's extreme, or that bucks current trends. And that's great. That's exactly what we should do. We don't want a society of drones who all think and behave the same. But with free speech necessarily comes respect. I may not like what you have to say, but I have to respect your right to voice it. The typical question I get from people arguing free speech with me is, do I support neo-Nazis marching through a Jewish community in Skokie, Illinois? The answer is, of course, I don't support them. But I do support their right to engage in speech if it's peaceful and they get the appropriate permits. Absolutely. Because maybe someday I will want to march. Or Black Lives Matter will want to march. Or abortion rights activists will want to march. And they have a right to voice their opinion, the same as a neo-Nazi does, the same as Gene Debs did. After President Wilson left office, Debs had a sentence commuted by incoming President Warren Harding in 1921. He did not issue Debs a pardon, but at least he recognized that jailing a man for expressing himself was wrong. So good on you, President Harding. Harding actually arranged to meet Debs personally on his way home from prison. Unfortunately, during his time in prison, Debs' health had deteriorated, and he never really fully recovered. He died of heart failure on October 20th, 1926. The Espionage Act is actually still in effect. It's a law in the books. It is still illegal to interfere with the draft, if there is one, though free speech decisions have largely resulted in the act now being interpreted as prohibiting actual violence or property damage to recruitment stations for the armed forces. So, that's the episode on how Gene Debs, socialist firebrand, was imprisoned for the despicable act of speaking his mind and opposing a war. As always, I do try to keep my own personal feelings out of the show, 
So if I said anything that caused you to believe I lean one way or the other, unless you've now concluded that I am not a socialist, it was unintentional and could be in error. I'm happy to discuss my own thoughts with listeners, but I don't like to force them on the show because that's not really what it's about. If you enjoyed this episode, and I truly hope you did, please subscribe to the show. And if you rate and review the show, it will help other people find it as well. If you're new, please feel free to check out the entire prior catalog. If you have any comments, if you want to suggest a topic like free speech, or if you want to ask a question about criminal law, or if you just want to send me a message unrelated to the show, please email me at insummationpodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet me at insummationpod. I'm on Instagram at insummation. You can visit the show's website, insummation.com, or you can look me up on my law firm's website, robertcgottlieblaw.com. A special thank you, as always, to Dan Townsend, my audio engineer and brother, who's getting married soon. Congrats, bro. Also, a special thank you to everyone who's been reaching out about the guest episodes. I will certainly try to mix more guests in as often as I can. The conversations really seem to be enjoyable for listeners, so I think that's great. Let's all be mindful of free speech and how wonderful it is that we can dissent from the government in America without necessarily becoming political prisoners or assassinated. As always, thanks for stopping by, and I hope that you'll come back for more.